Welcome back to the energetics of everything, your favorite place to learn about all things, wealth, health, and personal development from an energetic perspective. If you are someone who is in pursuit of both being the best version of yourself and creating a wildly impactful life, then this is the place for you. Throughout this podcast, you will learn how to use my hindsight as your foresight as you identify your purpose, optimize your behavior patterns, and create a ripple effect of positive change that your soul knows you're capable of. My name is Eden Carpenter, and I am so excited to be a part of your personal growth today. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Energetics of Everything podcast. I am here today with Rachel Lewis, who is a 3-5 splenic projector, and we're going to talk about ADHD, neurodivergency, autism, and maybe some trauma and energy and human design. It's going to be a phenomenal conversation. I'm so excited. Thank you for being here, Rachel. How are you doing? I am doing really well, and thank you for having me. I'm super curious, actually, just to dive into this whole subject and see what comes out of it. Me too. I love our designs. We actually have two friendship channels. We both have the 1762 and the 1858. And so I feel like we're going to have a really interesting conversation where we're really just curious. Like we're just curious to see where this goes and I'm sure it's going to land in some amazing places. But to get us started, can you just share with the audience a little bit about you, how you got into the work that you're doing? What kind of work do you do right now? Just orient us to who Rachel is. Yeah. So I do follow the typical, I think it's my 17, 18 part of the like 30 years where I was just kind of stumbling around trying to figure out what I was doing. And in the last few years, very specifically, I have gotten more into what am I here to do? Who am I here to guide? How do I work with my energy as a projector instead of against it? And that has opened up a whole world of coaching and really leaning into that passion and those insights that I have as being a guide for people and seeing patterns and seeing really deep things that people I think didn't want me to see in a lot of the spaces that I was in before. And so I always felt very kind of pulled back or ashamed by that. Like I'm going to act like I'm not seeing (laughs) you the way, because you don't want to be seen. Yeah. So it's really nice to have a space now. I'm a coach and I have some group containers right now. The one that I just launched is all about intentions, but with the seasons, we have this big, it's time to set resolutions and it's time to do all these things. And we're in this winter season where it's like, you need to rest and reflect and restore. And we're trying to get up all this motivation to go, go, go. And it really goes against that natural rhythm and creates a lot of tension. And so in this program, we're diving into how do we kind of plant the seed and allow ourselves to crack open in the darkness and not know where it's going until spring starts to kind of let us peek our heads out and go, oh, I see that my intentions are flourishing, but without doing a lot of the doing right now. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I just kind of birthed out of this season and it's taken a really wild turn and I love it. So that's what I'm doing right now. And then I start QCA, which is a certification program here in a couple of weeks. And so I'm just kind of getting to that space of learning again and growing again and evolving even more. 
I love that. And with your design, you're designed to be a perpetual student with that defined Ajna. We love to just take in new information and learn all of the things. So that's absolutely beautiful. I'm curious in your own words, in your own definition, especially with your 1762 channel and your 4323 channel, what is your definition and how do you see and understand neurodivergency, ADHD, and autism? I know that's a broad question. So just go yeah. wherever, go wherever you okay. want to go. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't really say I have six children. We have three biological children, three adopted. And the only reason I really clarify that here is just to give some context to some of the traumas and different stories behind what I'm noticing. So I do have neurodivergence in our home. We have two boys who have ADHD, what I would consider the typical clinical, they need a lot of extra support for their ADHD at their age. And in the beginning, I kind of was like, let's just give them a lot of trauma support. And we worked a lot on nervous system regulation and a lot of the holistic, like we have a lot of rhythms in our day to keep them doing their best and well-supported. And even at that, we noticed they still needed more support and more help. My view of neurodiversity merges the more that I learn and the more spaces that I'm in. And it's something where I feel like it's not this one size fits all or all encompassing answer. It's got a lot of nuance to it. And same thing with autism. We did officially get a diagnosis for one of our children of autism and it was really interesting to see after we got some of his ADHD more manageable to support him better. That's when we noticed more of the autism coming out or being more apparent. Mm -hmm. I think it's just really interesting to see the different ways in which things show up and how we mask things and how we associate in this world. And that has led me to like, what are the gifts of this? What are the strengths of this? And as I've parented my boys, I've been more aware that I have a lot of ADHD tendencies and I have a lot of ways in which I have masked those or learned to deal with them where now that my husband and I have kind of switched roles and he's the primary caregiver in our home and I'm working, those things kind of <laughs> have fallen by the wayside and our life kind of got really messy for a little while of like, I don't have my systems in place. You keep touching my stuff. I can't find anything. I'm really disorganized. And I think the invitation that I have in this moment is how can we work with these things as gifts and also hold space to not downplay the struggle that comes with that and the misunderstanding? Because something that I felt for me and my children is just that being misunderstood and the, oh, you'll be fine, or it's not that big of a deal around the holidays that comes up a lot in our home. And people think, oh, they did so well. It's just fine. Keep doing what you're doing. And we come home and have four or five days of dysregulation and meltdowns and big emotions and trying to reset. And there's a lot of us. So it takes a long time. And I think that if I could give one kind of, I don't know, blanket statement about it is just like, you don't see what you don't see. And you don't see all the things that go behind the scenes for somebody who is dealing with any type of neurodivergence. Mm-hmm that they're trying really, really hard to live in a world and work in a world where they don't necessarily fit in and they are misunderstood. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned masking and I'm familiar with the term, but would you be willing to explain what masking means to an audience that may not know what that term means? 
Yeah. So masking is when you put on or discover ways to mask or cover up your neurodivergent tendencies and act in a more neurotypical way. So specifically in autism, my son will watch other people. If you're paying close attention, you'll watch him morph his behavior in real time as a child. When you're an adult, you might have not even known that you were masking as a child or picking those things up, but it's basically just a way that we fit ourselves into what seems more socially acceptable, the more social norm for the things that secretly, or maybe we don't even recognize that we feel ashamed or embarrassed or like, Ooh, that's something in me that can't be shown to the world because it will be misunderstood. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I have a whole bunch of theories around masking and conditioning specifically in the centers. We can always go into aura type, but I feel like the centers is really just a great conversation. And one of the things that I've noticed is there's so many people when they're on their own, they've moved out of their house and they're experiencing this late diagnosis, right? Of There's so many, especially women right now who are experiencing late diagnosis with ADHD or autism. And I have a theory that it's probably related to the conditioning that we experience in that mm-hmm. home. I also grew up in a big family. I have seven biological siblings, so yeah. I understand. <laughs> and I had one brother who was medicated and diagnosed with ADHD and he's pretty sure he's still on ADHD medication in his 20s, but he has only his sacral center and his root center defined. Everything else is undefined. We grew up in a household with 10 people, most of which we have two projectors. Everyone else has a generator or a manifesting generator. And then there's three people who are not emotionally defined. (laughs) So there was seven defined emotional centers, all this big activity and like 10 people in the house. And so with his design, he has like root center pressure and sacral center energy. It's like root center pressure of like, let's go. There's adrenaline, there's big energy and that sacral center is excitement and even more energy. He was very classic, like could not stop. There wasn't a limit. We were in a church one time and there was a construction site and there was this hill and he got like all of the little boys up there and they were throwing bricks down the hill. <laughs> mm-hmm. That kind of ADHD. <laughs> where, yes. Yeah. I'm kind of coming back to the unmasking. When we step away from our parents' home, when we move away, we experience our own energy for the first time. Because when you're living in a household, you have access to specific energetic traits that have always been there. And so you can associate that with you because it is almost consistent enough to be like, oh, wow, this is my energy. For me, like my mother has a defined G center. She's very defined in that area and I'm very undefined. And she had this very straight path of you're going to go to school. You're going to get a great degree. You're going to go into med school. You're going to be a doctor. You can do incredible things. She was always supportive of that path. And so I saw myself as I'm the competitive gymnast. I'm going to get a scholarship. I'm going to go to med school. I'm going to do this. That's who I am. And then when I moved out for the first time, all of a sudden I was like, is that really me? Is it really me or is it maybe some of her energy that I've picked up on? And it was this major identity crisis of like, okay, I can do this. It feels easy. And I did. I continued to go through nursing school before I decided to quit. But I think that there's so much to be said about when we move out of our parents' homes 
and we experience our own energy as adults for the first time, that's the time when a lot of people are noticing, oh, maybe I have some neurodivergency. And really it's that like they're noticing their own energy for the first time. And I think that that's so fascinating. That is really fascinating thinking kind of just for myself in that way. I'm the only projector that was in my household and I could go, go, go because I had a lot of generator energy that I was growing up in. And it was really after my husband's also a generator. So like coming into the place where I realized, oh, I do really need a lot of rest. And this is why I would kind of isolate any house that we had growing up. I would find a perch like above the pantry. There's like a little alcove or cutout or something. And I would always go up there so that I could like observe my sisters when I was watching them, but I wasn't like actively in their play or in such a mountains environment. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And it was just one of those things that like, as I learn more, and as I see, it's helped me to honor that more instead of drawing on the energy of everyone. Mm -hmm. And not getting caught up now that I have a big family and they're mine to guide also still not getting caught up in projecting that on them or taking that on and just trying to make space for that. And also understanding that when we leave the home, it's all going to shift for them anyway. So what tools can I give them that they can hopefully come back to as they redefine who they are? Mm -hmm. And as I give them permission and space to, to be that and to change those things, it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about your thoughts on nature versus nurture when it comes to autism and ADHD and a lot of these symptoms, because you'd mentioned that you do work with trauma work and you're dealing with your biological and your adopted children in different and appropriate ways. And I'm curious, in your opinion, how does trauma play into our neurodivergency? There's a lot of correlation. It's kind of feels like one of those chicken or the egg (laughs) type conversations where I can't pinpoint, I think because we went the route first of being very trauma informed when we started foster care and adoption. And then it was in realizing that that didn't help enough that I started pursuing, okay, we've got to help different and to guide this child's energy different. And it was one in particular that we just were like the very kind of what you were describing. He would scale over fences, get other people joined in, or he would just take off and we would get him toys that we thought would be really good sensory toys. And again, trying more to nurture these things in him. And his tendency was to destroy them or to play in a whole different kind of way. He just turned seven. We spent it from two to seven, just feeling like we were chasing around in circles and not being able to support him well and not being able to figure out things. It was once we kind of took a step back from all the therapists and the trauma and 2020 helped with that because all the services (laughs) went away, but we really realized we had goals for him that did not support who he truly is. And as a mom, that was really hard for me because I wanted him to be able to have friends or have this idea of a life that I thought was successful or good. I wanted him to feel like he was part of the family, like he could join in. And those are all things that he really struggles with. So now he has a space off of our main living area And a lot of times we will put him in there and 
he gets to play with something where he can kind of hyper-focus and he can just be in his space Mm -hmm. and we don't disrupt that. I had to process for a long time, the guilt of he's not being part of the family during this time. We're not inviting him in. He's missing out and he's over there having his best life and he doesn't feel like he's missing out at all. We can know all these things, but there is part of this that whether he's medicated or whether he has different neurodivergencies that are actually named and noted, there's a lot of this that is just his nature and doesn't have to be dealt with in a certain way. It just has to be dealt intuitively for him. Like, what is he actually asking me for? What is he seeking support for right now? And then what doesn't bother him at all, but just bothers me because of my conditioning on what it means to raise a successful child. Yeah, That's kind of long-winded. No, but that's huge. Yeah, I love that. That's a huge thing to notice the difference between am I doing what's right for the child versus doing what I think is correct to raise a good child. And wow, I didn't even think about, of course, there's like a ton of identity things that come in when you're parenting children. That's not quite a role that I've stepped into yet. But yeah, I'm just like imagining that. And wow, that must take a lot of discernment, I'm sure. And our two boys, they don't show up the same in their ADHD or their trauma And one of them is very sensory seeking and wants to be held and wants reassurance and wants direction. And our other one wants nothing to do with that. And it made the bonding part really hard. Yeah. So we would get all these trauma-informed bonding things that we were supposed to do to help with attachment. And he was so resistant. And that was something for me, like, then I have to work with my own trauma Mm -hmm. because that was triggering abandonment issues and all of these. And he didn't feel safe to me. And so like, how do you love unconditionally and pour out into a space where that is being actively rejected? Mm -hmm. And then if I do in fact have ADHD, then that is hitting that button for me of rejection. Yeah. (laughs) And And the G center too. Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. all of these things are just kind of going around in circles. And it did take a lot of time of just pulling back and being like, where did this expectation come from? What am I actually trying to achieve here? And as a parent, I'm not trying to achieve being loved by this child. I'm here to guide this child. And so whether he can love me in the way that feels like love to me or not doesn't matter. But I also had to redefine what loving him looks like because I don't feel it a lot of the time. And that's really something that if somebody's listening to this, it sounds very oh my God, about parenting. It's very undefined G-Center. Both me and my husband have that. And there's even moments like <laughs> constantly, I'm like, he loves me, right? I don't, I don't <laughs> feel like he loves me, but I know he loves me. And so that's something right. that it's an inconsistent energy for us. It's like, am I lovable? That's going to come up for you. There's nothing wrong with you because you feel that sensation. That's just because you source your identity and you source your lovability from your environment. When you feel loved, you there's usually a moment and you're like, oh, wow, that's who I am to you isn't yeah. it? And it's like, you get to see yourself through the lens of other people. And that's how you fall in love with yourself as well. It's okay. If you don't always feel it, that's part of the inconsistent energy that you have and feeling that doesn't mean that you're loved. Right. Yeah. And I think that's super fascinating. I would love to do a big case study <laughs> about having an undefined G center. And then the people who struggle in ADHD with feeling constantly unworthy and unloved and unaccepted, Mm -hmm. is that really their undefined G center or is that their ADHD or is it their trauma or abandonment or whatever? Again, chicken or the egg, which one's, which one's, which one? I don't think it's any one 
Right. I, other, yeah. But, I think yeah. it's probably some in some situations and others in other situations. And it's yeah. really about, can you come in back to your authority and come back to your energy and trust you over everything that's going on? And that was something that came up in the last conversation as well, is there's so much information that it's actually like overwhelming because there's so yeah. much information. And then you're like, okay, well, can I trust this? This is saying something different and it's overwhelming. And so, especially for neurodivergent people, it's sometimes not even easy to study it because there's so many different trains of thoughts and so much information. So yeah, that self-discernment is absolutely a major thing. And then I wanted to ask is the child that you mentioned who has their own space, is that a manifester? No, actually, he's not one of our manifestors. So it is very interesting. He's a generator. And I do believe, I think he's one of our five ones. I'm 90% sure. But yeah, he's very fascinating to watch as a person. So he's our one that has probably the most trauma history, as well as he's got ADHD, very severe, and also autism. Mm -hmm. And It's just very interesting to watch those components. I feel like at this point in his life, they're kind of competing for which one gets to be the dominant right now. And I will say probably the best thing that we've done is turn off a lot of the information. It was really great to have it to pull on in the beginning, but now I have that very projectorness where it's just stored there. And when I need it, I'll pull it, but actively seeking new information has been very overwhelming. And it's something where I don't feel like I can apply it very well. And that was probably our biggest key in parenting him was just to kind of shut everything out and be like, let me observe. And let me just sit with this child and see where their cues are and what they're actually needing. And then we did work with a doctor to help medicate, to help with the ADHD part of things. He kind of describes it like we're giving the trees that we want to nurture more sunlight and blocking out the ones where like he has zero impulse control and it's a safety concern. Mm -hmm. So that, I don't know how that will serve him when he's older, but I feel like it's okay to starve it out a little bit because he needs to be able to process and think clearly and not run into the street every time just because he wants to. Yeah. That's where dealing with the energetics, there are certain situations where medication is necessary. And I'm not going to say like everyone needs medication. I'm not going to say nobody needs medication. I saw how it helped my brother and I know I could probably get an autism or an ADHD diagnosis. I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I have all of these weird things. I'm like, I'm probably somewhere on there, but like, it just doesn't feel necessary for me to get a diagnosis. But I saw how helpful that was for my brother. And there was a time they had to lower his dosage because at first he felt very just frozen and very muted. And it was just mm-hmm. too high of a dose. We figured that out and he was much better. Right now he's double majoring. He has a 4.0. He's working in a lab. He's prepping for med school, doing some biochemistry, other degree. He's doing incredible. I was like, this is the kid that was throwing bricks down hills and was like (laughs) borderline violent (laughs) to live with, not safe to be around. There was just sibling brawls, you understand, but he was dangerous sometimes. And so to see him as an adult now, he's doing so much better. He's thriving in school. He has a great social community. He's always moving. I think he could probably do a little bit of therapy to sit with some emotions because he's always moving, but he has figured it out. But when it came to that decision to medicate him, I remember my mom was crying over it. She felt so bad. She felt like a bad parent. She's like, I can't control my kid. 
and I have to put him on medication because I can't control him. And she felt like it was something wrong for her, but she had to work through, like, it's not about me. It's about my kids and it's about the safety of everyone that's involved in this situation. And so if this is a tool that's useful to help regulate this so that we can teach this person how to regulate that as an adult, they'll be a functional human. But if we're not able to create a safe environment, we're just going to perpetuate and create more trauma. So yeah, yeah, it's so helpful in some situations. I genuinely believe it. I think something that's coming through for me in this moment, listening to you speak is I don't know how this applies to anything other than it's really interesting for me to watch. We have a lot of, I don't know the word for it, just accommodations, I guess, in our home to keep things safe. So there's locks on everything. He doesn't have any toys in his room. He has a closet that has toys, but the closet locks. Otherwise he doesn't sleep. He'll just stay up all night long. A lot of the things that you hear about if your child is picky eater, let's say they'll say, well, eventually they'll eat because they won't starve themselves. And I'm like, well, this child really would starve themselves. Hands down. I'd have no doubt, (laughs) but I, it's very interesting with having three manifestor children where we have all these kind of rhythms and I don't want to call them blocks, but essentially like blocks to creativity because you can't get into the art supply cabinet without asking mom, Yeah, those kind of things. And it's always a wonderment in my mind of how are my other children going to thrive or flourish when they get into a different space where everything's not as regulated. And then how can I support that now? So we have spaces for them to be able to do that now, but it's something that's very interesting. And again, one of those things I kind of just have to take my hands off of and do the best that I can. And I think with any neurodiversity, that's really what we can do is Mm -hmm. how do we make this safe for everyone? How do we do the best that we can And then really, how do we release a lot of the expectations that have nothing to do with safety or thriving, Yeah, but are just societal conditionings of control, Mm -hmm. like keep the situation controlled and pleasant. There's gifts within neurodiversity, but I wouldn't say there's very many pleasant things (laughs) about it. Yeah, I can see that. I think that actually the restriction could be really, really beneficial for your manifestor children because they have to ask permission and asking permission is like the second step. It's like informing for kids. Like kids can't just inform, I'm going to the beach today. Like, no, you're not. <laughs> like, You can't right. drive. You can't get to the beach by yourself. You can't swim on your own. You're not just going to the beach. You have to ask permission. The fact that when they have that creative urge, like, hey, I want to paint they'll go and they'll inform. I can see that as being beneficial for them in this moment. And so of course, when they move into a space where there is maybe some less restrictions, they'll still have that pattern ingrained. It's like, okay, I feel this urge. Okay. I'm going to go inform the people. Maybe it gets to a point where there's no locks, but it's still in specific cabinets. And they say, Hey, I'm going to go paint or something, but that habit will be there already because you're training them. Like, Hey, you have to ask, like inform, use your words, remember that there's other people that exist. And so that's actually probably beneficial for them at this point too. (laughs) Yeah. That's really interesting. And now that you say that, I'm like, Oh, that's so interesting when you're thinking about it through the informing, because I was not equating asking and informing as the same thing, but obviously as a parent, 
yes, they do need to ask for certain things. That's very interesting. Yeah. And it's part of the deconditioning for adult manifestors is learning to not ask for permission, but to inform. They have to learn how to ask permission first. And that's still part of just learning and growing as a kid and as a manifestor. So yeah, it's actually good. Yeah, <laughs> I'm seeing that I'm like, that's great for manifestors. Like you're building that pattern for them. And the fact that you have three manifestor kids is insane. I've never seen three manifestors together, which is kind of fun. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah, you're building this routine of like, okay, when that urge hits, you go talk to somebody and then you get to do the thing and then you close it. You know, everything is closed down. And so you're creating a very clear cycle of creativity. It's like, if you're going to start something, you're going to inform, you're going to open the cabinet, you're going to get everything out. And then everything goes back. We're closing it when we're done. That's a great rhythm to have. We had things were just all over the place. And something that I feel like I struggle with now is completing things. I'll start something and then I'll mm. leave it there and it'll just be out for like a yes. week. <laughs> I have a, a child like that very much. So <laughs> very yeah. much. So <laughs> yes. yeah. And like that works for me in some situations, but yeah, I think that your intuition is guiding you to do exactly what's correct for these kids right now. Of course it is. <laughs> so something that just came up for me that I'm wondering your kind of take on is yeah. one of our kids that has ADHD. He is a manifester. He's an ego manifester mm. and a six, two. I think it's kind of funny. It's not funny, but it's humorous to me as his mother. So he has a little bit of a speech impediment and he talks really fast and he doesn't have his W's or a lot of his consonants are kind of out. So the very first word that we worked on in speech for him was want. I want. And we teach him all the time. But of course, he's got that part, the just the ego and the going and the pulling desires all the time. And so he'll list out his wants. That's where I really see more of the ADHD part come out is he just ping, ping, pings from mm -hmm. one want to the other. And a lot of times we're just like, no, stop talking, like, yeah. stop, you know, kind of yeah. a thing. But I just wonder what comes up when I say that we've got those two things yeah. or all is of that center package. I was going to look because I have six kids. I yeah, don't, I get I'm it. Not memorized. I still haven't chart. memorized all of my siblings charts. <laughs> So no, it is open. Okay. Yeah. So he's inspired. He's getting these inspired ideas. It's like, oh, that's really cool. I want that. So it's like shiny object versus heart desire. There's got to be some sort of game or something that you can do around just teaching him how to differentiate between inspired, like shiny object syndrome and deep heartfelt desire, because that's going to be as an adult, a pattern. He's like, is this shiny object syndrome, or is this genuinely a heart-centered desire? I would just get curious around like, what does your body feel like when you want something? Like when you really, 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 really want something and just ask him mm -hmm. to describe that and maybe like put your hands on your heart, maybe ask the question like, would you love to have this? Would you love That's to a have questions? Yeah. And then just seeing how he feels about that. We're just asking like, okay, let's go through this is a really, really big list. So of all of these things, which one do you want the most? Which one makes your heart go, oh, I want that so, so bad. Just showing him a little bit of the difference between that heart-centered desire and head-centered inspiration. And then being a manifester, that undefined sacral center as well, and like the undefined root center, he's just taking in like, oh, that person's having fun with that. Maybe I could have fun with that. 
it's just how his energy works, but he'll say yes to some things and then he'll be disappointed with it and be like, okay, I didn't actually want that. So if there's any situations like that, see if you can point that out of like, hey, you know that you said you really, really wanted this. And now how do you feel about it now? Wasn't quite what you were expecting. Okay, so let's think back to when we said we wanted this. When you thought about really wanting this, was it a heart-centered desire? Was it really a desire or was it a fun idea? Yeah, that's a good question. Was it a heart-centered desire? Was it just a fun idea? That'll just teach him to zoom in on those moments when he's making the decision and notice, what am I feeling? What is going on in that? Where did that inspiration come from? And then he'll be able to differentiate what's my authority versus what's my conditioning. Yeah, that's super helpful. Thank you. Of course. (laughs) Happy to help. Okay. I've got a couple of questions and we've been all over the place and it's been beautiful. I've loved this. Is there anything specific that you do on daily basis? What are the nervous system regulation tips that you use? I'd love to actually hear some daily nervous system regulation tips for you and that you do for your kids. Yeah. So for me, I kind of pick and choose as I desire, but we are really intentional. We try really hard to do hugs each day, like 20 second hugs for each child, for myself. And I think that's one of those things where I probably struggle the most is that when I'm feeling overwhelmed, I definitely don't want to be touched, Mm -hmm. but I have gotten better at asking my husband to touch me in a way that adds some pressure so that I can regulate better. Mm -hmm. Breathing is our number one for everybody in the household, for myself, we do different patterns of breathing. So depending on what sensations are coming up for us, there's a lot of breath work that happens to reset when we're feeling a lot of anxious sensations or maybe sensations that are coming up that feel threatening to us or that this is uncomfortable. It's the breathe in for four, hold for four, exhale for eight. Those are really good. And we modify those for our kids where we do have them count sometimes, but depending on what's happening the one that we love a lot, which is an RRT from Andrea Crowder is the balloon. Yeah. We have our kids blow into a balloon and that helps our son with autism a lot because he doesn't have to be able to name his emotion. Mm -hmm. He can name the color of the balloon and release. And it has been probably hands down the best tool that we've had for regulation for him specifically, but it works for everyone. It's so great. I do balance boards. That also helps a lot, especially if I'm feeling very dysregulated. It gives me just a moment. And we do that also with our children. So in autism, it's very, very common that they will have low tone in their muscles and very little core strength. Mm -hmm. So anything where you can get them using that core, balancing, having them do different things propped up on their elbows where they're having to color laying down on their elbows or giving them a sensory swing, but making them lay in it as like a kind of long ways and then giving them objects to reach for that are away. So they have to use that core. Yeah. Those are great. I'm trying to think I've got a pranamat. I lay on it every night. I don't know if that helps with my nervous system or just in general, but it's one of my routine things that I do every night that helps to just, I think, add some more of that stimulation. Cause when I do get overwhelmed, I don't want to be touched, but we all need touch. Yeah. <laughs> we all need that input. So that's been really, really useful to me. And then really a lot of it goes back to breath for me. Yeah. Yeah. Breath and work is amazing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. There's two fun little games that I've seen on TikTok and I've played like once or twice with some of my nieces and nephews. One of them is kind of breath work, but it's called blowing out the birthday candles. And so I did this with my three-year-old niece. It was so cute. She was really emotional and it was like, mom said she couldn't have a cookie because we're about to eat dinner and she's really upset about it. And, you know, I'm asking her how she's feeling. And I said, okay, can you blow out the birthday candles? And I hold up four fingers and she blows really hard and I'll wiggle them like they're blowing out. And then like, oh, you got one down. Okay. Can you blow harder this time? And it's getting that breath release as well. You can do it with cotton balls as well. Like, can you blow the cotton ball all the way across the table? And another one that I saw was getting cotton balls wet. And then like, if you're really angry, throwing them against a wall how far away can you stand? Can you make the cotton ball stick to the wall? And so that's so good because it's using the body. It's getting anger out. Actually throwing something is so good for that release of anger. Just throw the wet cotton ball against the wall. And then after you've thrown all five, pick them up, put them back in the bowl, and then we're going to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah. So that was one thing kind of going into some of the trauma informed is when you're experiencing something like that, or when your children are, they aren't able to hear my voice the Mm -hmm. same way for the children who are able to have that touch, a really tight hug and holding them and rocking side to side, rocking side to side is great for your nervous system. So my husband and I do that when we're like at a party and it's too loud or a family gathering and (laughs) I'm a mom, so I can have the baby sway. It's fine. Yeah, Um, That's a really good one. And then yes, anything where you're moving your emotions or your feelings, those sensations outside of the body. So we do silent screams. You can silent scream. You can scream in your pillow with actual audible if you like. We used to have this huge tire. I have no idea where we got it from, but it was like one of those really big ones that you would see at the playground. And we would just let them go out there and hit it with like a rubber mallet. Anything again, where you're, yes, you're actively getting those motions. And we do yoga as a family that has been really great for my nervous system regulation. And I think as somebody who kind of has all of these different things going on, for me, it's really helpful to just be able to get away and discern what's mine. So if I'm having a lot of big emotions coming up, I have to go away and be like, is this mine? And my husband and I both have an undefined emotional center. So it's like, I will feel his anger at a five and he might be experiencing at a one. And then we play off of each other with that. And it has been really helpful for us to both just be like, hey, we're going to step away to different rooms for a second and come back and see if we're actually feeling anything at all. (laughs) And then we can name those to each other because a lot of times it's just us stacking the emotional feeling off of each other. Mm-hmm. So well, yeah, I mean, really helpful. emotion just wants to be seen. And when it becomes, no, you don't see me. 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 And then it just ladders up instead of being like, okay, we're both not feeling seen. You go first. Let me see you. And then you see me. Now we both see everything. Cool. Now what are we going to do? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Time apart is such a phenomenal communication tool because sometimes like when energy gets high and this is rapid resolution therapy, when emotion is high, intelligence is low because Mm. when emotion is high, energy is in the body and it says we have to take action. So it's in the jaw if you're angry. It's in your legs if you're really afraid and you're ready to run somewhere, but it's not in your brain. And so in those moments when you're afraid and when you're angry, you're going to say something, you're going to shout something that the anger might mean, but you don't actually mean. And so taking a step back, you're able to regulate the emotions, you get back that clarity, and then you're actually able to have access to your higher logic and your thinking and your clarity and your intuition. And you'll be able to make those decisions of like, okay, 
what are my resources? Like, what if I go grab cotton balls right now? And like, you're not going to think of that if you're in a heated argument. Right. Taking... I think rapid resolution therapy has probably been the biggest help for having a lot of tools on hand that are very effective, but mm -hmm. that are easy to think of in the moment. So just that concept and being able to recognize that I don't have the clarity or that my children don't have the clarity in that moment. And to be able to identify that this emotion doesn't have any positive or negative connotation to it. It just is. And like you said, it wants to be seen or felt or identified, whichever. And so you can move out of the trying to repress it or trying to control it and rather use it in a useful way which is not in our day and age, biting somebody or running away really fast. No. <laughs> so, so it is very, very helpful. Yeah. I'm obsessed with rapid resolution therapy and I just can't wait to keep studying and keep bringing it into the work that I do because it's been so powerful. I've been working with Andrea for almost a year now and I feel like a different person. Even though I was working with human design, it really is like a shortcut for a lot of that deconditioning work and a lot of the emotional processing. And it was one of the first things that got me out of my head and actually into my emotions. And as an emotional authority, that's so important. And I yes. didn't realize how much I was still intellectualizing my decisions. I'm like, okay, well, I think it's going to look like this and I have to figure it out. And I think I can probably make it work if I do this instead of being like, okay, this feels good. Let's go that way. I don't know what's going to happen, but that feels good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's one of the things that I have used a lot in my programs and I do have a program very specifically about tapping into your intuition. So I use a lot of human design, but what I also realized is, is that getting people to get back into their body is really, really key about tapping into your intuition because that's where it lives. That deconditioning and those things, I've seen a lot of patterns in my clients. I think all of them right now that are in this container, as far as I know, are generators. Most of them are emotional authorities, but they almost all are struggling with anxiety. And that's something where I really got the hit the other day, just like I'm going to do a program and it's going to be infused with rapid resolution therapy and some of the other techniques and things so that they can process that or learn how to work with it in a way that's not just, I need it to stop. Mm -hmm. There is useful information and in what your body's trying to tell you. And I might have a whole different take on it, but I do think that anxiety is often our body's way of getting louder when we've suppressed so many of those centers and those emotions and the way that our intuition is trying to communicate with us. And absolutely does it feel so heavy and so big in the moment, but I've watched so many people transform as they start to use rapid resolution therapy. And as I'm guiding them through how to be present to the thoughts that are coming up for them and to allow that to be a communicated message rather than something that they're trying to avoid or stop. I think it's just absolutely amazing that something in the mental health world that's so like undefined and unclear and is kind of just this very big thing that's you're just going to live with yeah. that we can actually say it doesn't have to be that way. And there is a useful way to process and sit with your anxiety. And then it doesn't have to build and build and build all the way to a panic attack. My husband hasn't had a panic attack in, I think over a year. I know Dr. Connolly says, don't practice on your family, but I didn't hear that part first. We totally did a whole bunch of stuff. And I thought for a while, I was like, man, I must've broke my husband. I don't know what happened, but he just was 
for the first time, able to start to pay attention and identify what was coming up for him, what had been triggering him, where he was looking for threats all of the time, because he never had that felt safety mm-hmm. in his own body. I struggled with panic attacks really when I was in my teenage years a lot. There was just so much going on in my life at that time. It makes sense. But I noticed that when I found out that I had fear motivation, I really see my anxiety very differently in that that same sensation of that heightened nervous system response, the same sensation of fear is the same sensation as excitement. And it's really just anticipation and really high energy thinking about the future. Something that I've done, this is more of like a gene keys thing than rapid resolution therapy, I guess. But it's really just noticing that maybe that shadow frequency, maybe it's the same thing. And so maybe the sensation, like, can I just label this sensation differently? What if this was excitement and not anxiety? Because I'm anticipating that something's going to happen and I have no idea how it's going to turn out and it could be bad, but it could also be good. And there's nothing I can do about it now, but I don't want to be afraid of what's coming. I want to be excited about what's going to come next. And so that's been a major shift for me is noticing like I'm fear motivation. And so when that fear comes up, that's the sensation of stamina for me. That's my body saying, hey, we've got energy. We're going to give you the momentum to get this done. And it shows up for me in the lens of fear. Like I get terrified. (laughs) I'm terrified. I'm like, oh my God, everything is going to collapse. My business is going to implode. It feels like everything's going to explode when really it's just my energy is saying like, oh, big change is happening. And so it's, can I label it differently so that I'm experiencing it differently has been huge. That's huge for my husband as well. It kind of brings me back to when we very first got married and we were super young (laughs) and I was noticing that pattern before I knew human design or RRT or any of these things. And I told him, I was like, I think you have a broken anticipatory gland because you are experiencing the same sensation over the things that you're excited about and the things that you're terrified of and very organically and messily, we came up with ways to help him navigate big changes like our wedding. That was a big one (laughs) and having the birth of our kids. And so we actually finally, by the third child that I birthed, he was able to be in the room with me. Mm -hmm. But the funny thing is this, the second child that I birthed, I was coaching him while I was breathing. He was at home having a panic attack. And I was like on the phone having contractions and I'm like, just breathe, baby. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny to look back on now. He's an incredible, incredible man. So that story does not do him justice, but he just was so excited and he couldn't differentiate at that time. And so it caused full-blown panic. And now we've been able to pull a lot of different tools for him to relabel those things because you're right. It's absolutely the same thing. And his body just is gearing up and it's causing all these things, but he has had a lifetime of associating that with, oh crap. And I'm about to throw up or I'm going to be sick or I'm going to have a panic attack. And so reframing and rewiring that for him so that he can instead not go there, not go to, oh, this is leading me to a panic Mm -hmm. attack, but rather this is giving me energy and I can enjoy this sensation and name it for what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, that's amazing. We all have those stories that don't quite do the men in our lives justice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
I think that that's a beautiful story. And I love that you were able to support him and you were able to navigate that together. I think that that's always so beautiful. The really strong marriages and the really strong partnerships are the ones who've gone through difficult things together. Yeah. And it's like that challenge that builds that gift. For sure. Amazing. For sure. Okay. I have one final question for you. Okay. And that is as this kind of wave of neurodivergency and autism and trauma awareness is rising and even human design is coming more into the scenes. It's becoming more popular. What are your hopes and dreams for society as we evolve? What do you hope for the future? I really hope for the major transformation that I see, like I have been looking ahead and seeing the patterns of all these things coming up and noticing them. And I really feel both called to guide people because it changes scary or it can be. It's very uncomfortable. That's a better word. I would love to just see people and the society lean into it and really embrace it and use it as evolution and a way to evolve and grow and really just to be able to shift that we're seeing a rise in this. And to me, that's not coincidental. It's not just over diagnosis. It's not all of these other things. There's a lot of people wanting to say it's because of X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. But when you see something because like of this TikTok. Happen- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you see something like this happening on what feels like a massive scale, I believe that there's a lot of purpose in it and that there is a purposeful shift happening. Mm-hmm. My hope is that we would lean into that and get curious, ask better questions, find out what the gifts of this are and what the lessons are that we are wanting to learn. Because the truth of it is, is we are raising the generation of these children. And a lot of us are figuring out that it started with us and that these are ways in which I feel we have both adapted, but as part of our evolution And I do see it as growth where it's headed. I don't really know. And I've had some theories and some of them are really wacky. And I mean, I don't know, but I think that it's extremely interesting and something that we can pay attention to, but also that we need to clear our conditioning and our messaging Mm -hmm. around because my children are not a burden to society. My neurodiversity is not something to be masked or to be regulated necessarily. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of gifts in that that allow me to be a CEO, that allow me to work with my energy well, that I love my hyper-focus because it allows me to work with that projector energy of just get it done and then rest. And I take lots of time for rest, but I couldn't do that if I was trying to do bite-sized pieces every single day. That Mm -hmm. just would not work for me. So I think as we study those things in the vein of human design and the information that we have when we do it in a way that feels very useful and there is a lot of overwhelm that can come from trying to learn all these things, but just taking the next bite-sized piece for you and making the decision that you feel intuitively led to, to dive into these things with an open mind and deconditioning. I think that is something that's going to be really, really beautiful to see how it turns out and what starts to fall away as we embrace those things. Yeah. I love that answer. Thank you so much for sharing. This has been a delightful conversation. And if anybody wants to connect with you a little bit more, where can they find you? So my primary space is on Instagram and it's Rachel Christina with a K. So I don't know if we can put that in the notes or something, but rachelchristina.coach. 
And I do have some offers open. They're all linked there. And I know that 2024, I've got a lot more coming and I'm really excited about that. So just kind of jump in and enjoy the ride because I'm coming out. That's, <laughs> that's kind of where, where I'm at at this moment. So yeah. Thank you. Amazing. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for your time today and for having this beautiful conversation with me. And thank you everyone else for listening to today's episode. It was so beautiful. 